Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 57. I do need you to have your Bibles open to this whole chapter. I only have some of the verses there on the outline, in the, on the insert. Uh, so have your electronic version available and ready, or your hard copy, or the Pew Bible. The Pew Bible, um, Isaiah 57 happens on page 616. So if you turn there, you will be able to follow that, and you will need to have it open. As, as I say once again, uh, we'll look at all 21 verses. Um, my warning to you as we walk through um, such a long uh, prophecy as Isaiah, is to remember that this is um, the total of a 50-year ministry by God's Spirit um, laid before us, the sum total of the message of the prophet Isaiah who lived in the 8th century B.C. Um, his life spanned the close of the days of the northern kingdom and the winding down of the days of the southern kingdom into exile and God's discipline. And so the book goes up and down. There's moments of real sadness and sorrow. It's heavy. Then there's moments of, of grace and redemption and the picture of Messiah. That's really the climactic point of the whole book in the last of the servant songs, chapter 52, 53. All those should find their refuge in him for their immediate trials and troubles and for the future. And everything's rooted in that. And the faithful are always called back to that trust, to that refuge. But we'll come across passages again, like today, where he outlines the severe sins of the people of God. And my warning to us when we read a passage like this is not to zone out. It's not to think, boy, were they bad, those Judah, those Judahites. Uh, They were awful. Look what they did. Glad we're not them. Um, That would be the worst way for God's faithful to hear God's word. Um, when God's faithful hear his word and there's severe sins like this, maybe we're not in the middle of all of them, but we can relate. But it's only by God's grace that we're not, so it should be occasion for us to be again humbled and, and brought low in the right way. And that's what God's word intends, the impact it intends to have on us as we take it directly for the message it gives. Now I will read to begin uh, the passage that is on your outline And this is the second half of the passage. The passage really addresses, on the one hand, those who are still in their sins. They're being disciplined by God, uh, the wicked, as they're called, and they're at complete turmoil in their life, even though they're striving for peace. That's half of the text. The other half, which we look at in this reading, are the righteous. And they're not righteous because they have kept all God's commands. They're righteous because they've been brought low in reality about their sins, and they're seeking refuge in God. Um, So there's the peace of God that passes understanding that they receive. It's about the righteous and the wicked. The righteous with peace and the wicked in turmoil. These two peoples are represented here in this passage before us. I'll start, though, at the second part of verse 13, and I'll read to verse 21. Please hear, as I read, God's inspired and inerrant and authoritative word. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, 
nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I've seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. In its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Let's together bow as I lead us in prayer. O Lord, indeed, you are the one who is high and lifted up. You are the one who inhabits eternity. You cannot be contained. You are the one whose name alone is holy, yet you dwell with the contrite, with those who confess their sins and rest in Christ. For those who confess their sins, you do not despise. Give us humility as we consider the message of your word. Draw us to yourself through your Son, our Savior. In his name we pray, amen. The longer you are a Christian, there is a particular sin that becomes uh, more tempting to us. Maybe you experience victory over certain sins that plagued you before, and as you grow in the Lord, um, you see some victory. We all know there are many struggles and trials. I don't mean you ever become sinless, but you notice growth and difference from where you are today from where you are before. Here's the temptation that we have to be careful of and on guard about as we approach the text today. We can become self-righteous. Like, wow, I have some victory. I could say no to this, or I've done this, or I've kept that. And all of a sudden we think too much of the I in that statement, and we start to think it's self-propagated. We forget that the grace that saved us is the same grace that gives us growth in sanctification or being more like Christ. It's still God's work of grace, We become self-reliant and self-righteous. And the way we know this is the case, when we hear of other people's sins and our thought is a judgment upon them immediately or I'm glad I'm not like them, that's a sign that we've succumbed. And self-righteousness is the real temptation for a person who's been a believer for a while. In fact, one of the stories that illustrates this uh, most clearly is with Jesus when he's trying to make this point clear to people who had been religious for a long time, the leaders of the Jews in his day. They thought they'd kept all these rules and rituals. They were, in fact, the righteous ones. And in Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a story. And listen to why he tells the story. He gives us this warning. And I say us because we should be willing to admit we could fall into this. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So they were thinking, looking down at others because of what they thought themselves to be. He said, two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Of course, a tax collector in those days, just the way they made their money, it was basically by extortion. The Roman government said, go collect this amount from each person, and what you collect extra is yours. Well, what's the restraint at that point? And so tax collectors became known as swindlers and extortionists. So here we have 
this reference, the Pharisee, the religious leader, the religious one who kept all the rites and rituals, and the tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get, of all that I get, and so on. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. Jesus gives the timeless reality that shows who the righteous really are, shows who the faithful really are, the ones who know who they are before God's righteousness, and with low contrition, seek refuge in him, knowing that we deserve from the Holy One his justice. But praise God, what we learn again in Isaiah 57, the Holy One whom we offend with our sin, the Holy One is also the merciful one. And so we can know for sure who he is, not deny any of it, not make excuses about our sins, and at the same time know that he is also the merciful one. And he showed his mercy ultimately in fulfilling what he forecasted back in Isaiah 53. He showed it at the cross. We read it in his word. We see it on display in his sacraments. And we rest in this. The Holy One is also the merciful one. And that's the good news for all here today who believe that. And the passage sets before us a a terrible reality. The people of God, corporate, Judah at this time, had in mass turned away from their God and turned to the nations for help, turned to the nations for sustenance. They were unrestful and in turmoil and thought that by going to the sources around them, they would gain peace, when in fact the opposite happened. They found more turmoil, whereas the righteous who in this day suffered greatly for their standing up for Jehovah, even died, it says in the first two verses of chapter 57, they actually found peace. They were killed, but they found peace in their life and in their death because they didn't abandon Jehovah who was their refuge. It's a beautiful picture of the um, the two options for us. And we have a choice to make, humanly speaking, but it can only be made with God's gracious provision. Let's look at the two different contrasted peoples in the text, this will help us understand better. We look at the turmoil of the wicked who are displayed in these verses. I read the portion that deals with those who were contrite, who recognized sin and turned to him. Now let's consider, by looking at your passage in your Bible, starting at verse 3, really what amounts to an expose of the kinds of sins Judah was guilty of in the time Uh, that Isaiah is writing during the time of the rise of Babylon. Kyle and Dalich quantify these verses by saying the reproachful language, which is to come here starting in verse 3, the reproachful language of the prophet is now directed against the mass of the nation who have occasioned the evil from which the righteous have been swept away. In verse 1 and verse 2, which we will return to when we look at the righteous, it refers to the untimely death of those who were faithful to Jehovah. But those who were in mass, part of the nation, didn't even recognize the loss of these righteous. And so now we come to verse 3, where the prophet, by God's Spirit, speaks 
an exposing of the sin of the people that was leading to their discipline. It says, But you, draw near, sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? So he, as a metaphor, uses sons, and later he'll use a man, um, as a metaphor for the people. Uh, Like a father correcting a son, or another person correcting a man in sin. Calls the nation this. And we have the sin of spiritual idolatry, which is also just like spiritual adultery. And he uses that as the metaphor. The northern kingdom had already been lost to this spiritual idolatry. Now the south was falling to the discipline of the Lord through Babylon in a similar way. It describes further what they were doing. Verse 5 and verse 6. You who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks, among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They, they are your lot. To them you have poured out a drink offering You have brought a grain offering. Shall I relent for these things? Lots here. Lots has been exposed. He starts by accusing them of this pagan, yes, tree worship that was part of the Phoenician culture, the Chaldean culture. It could be found in many ancient cultures in this part of the world. And it's based on this worship of the terebinth tree or the evergreen tree primarily. And all sorts of nasty rituals would happen um, in their acts of worship to these trees. Why these trees? Well, evergreen trees have always caught the, the attention of people. They're, they're pretty amazing. You think of how bad the weather gets outside, and they're still green. In antiquity, it was no different. They would see the, uh, the elements, the leaves drop, and it get brown and dead, but yet the green trees would be there. And so they, would, they deified these trees in some way uh, to make them uh, connected to this god of fertility that kept things fresh, kept things growing, kept the race propagating. And so... The, the Judaites had become believers or at least outward practicers of this pagan religion in the sight of their God, Jehovah. And he accuses them of what is obvious, that they have committed spiritual adultery by partaking in these rituals. But there's more, something even more heinous. Who slaughter your children in the valleys. Human sacrifice can be shown uh, as part of many ancient cultures. And this is the case in the time of Israel. We see it um, earlier in their history through the gods, uh, the god of the god Molech that the Israelites were accused of sacrificing their own infants to. And now here in the days of Babylon and Chaldea, you have the same thing happening where they are joining in with these rituals where they toss their children off of high rocks in order to appease gods or gain something from these gods. And they had gone that far to the point of slaughtering their own children. It even refers to uh, something else that has been revealed uh, by discoveries of ancient civilizations. Verse 6, Among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They, they are your lot. That's a place of worship. Usually it's a place set up with stones and things that people uh, that were smoothed out. Some think they were honed into figures or idols. Others say they just look different. And so uh, the ancients were enamored with it, and they used it as a place of their pagan worship. That's most likely the case. And they're guilty of going and giving their devotion, their worship to these places and the gods they represented. It says in verse 6, To them you poured out a drink offering, you brought a grain offering. Shall I relent for this? 
He says, I've, I've caught you in this idolatry. I see where your devotion is. You're evidencing it to everybody. Should I hold back on this? Should my justice stay back from you on this? Well, it paints a picture of total commitment on the part of God's people, but not to Jehovah, to the nations around them, to the gods around them. They wanted to survive. They wanted peace. They saw Babylon coming, so they do what everybody else is doing, thinking that will buy them peace. And there's the irony. It doesn't get them peace at all. But we go on in the text, and we see how devoted they are to this spiritual idolatry. Verse 7, on a high and lofty mountain, you have set your bed. You've rested there. That's a picture. You've rested. It's not just you have an, uh, an altar up there, which they did. High places in the Old Testament almost always refer to places of pagan worship um, that were set up by various perpetuating cultures, and the Israelites were guilty of setting up uh, or going up and worshiping there. The text says you've set your bed there. Okay, there's no way you could deny that you are committed there. It says in verse 8, Behind the door and the doorpost, you have set up your memorial. Now, at first glance, that might be difficult. You say, what does that mean? And I know a lot of Isaiah, if you haven't done study, you know, heavy study on it, a lot of it is lost on us. But I want you to see verse 8 for what it says. What I think is, it says, behind the door and the doorpost, you have set up your memorial. Now, every Jewish person was supposed to have in their house, on the doorpost, a statement of their belief. Where does this come from? Back in the times of Moses in Deuteronomy 6. Listen to to what was commanded of the people. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Profession or confession of faith. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. What a statement of worshiping God only, not these other gods, God only. That's their confession. And these words that I command you today shall be in your heart, You shall teach them diligently to your children. And here's the key in Deuteronomy 6. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So on your gates and your doorposts lets us know this is supposed to be evident so that people can see looking in who you are loyal to and you can be reminded while you're in your house. Yet we come to verse 8. Behind the door in the doorpost, you have set up your memorial. In other words, you'll go worship in these high places. You'll pour out your drink offerings to other gods. You'll even sacrifice your children. And oh, you'll have some ode to me, but it's on the backside of your doorpost. And you have a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved their bed. You have looked on nakedness. They have committed spiritual adultery. Now, a preacher could go overboard with an application here, but I do want to challenge us, myself included, now, I want to, don't want to know how your house is set up, nor do I want you to know how mine is. If you're coming over, let me know so I have time to clean up. But I want you to think about this from our perspective and our context. We profess faith in Christ. You're here on a Sunday morning, and I know many people are not at church on Sunday mornings. That's wonderful. It's a profession of faith. But I wonder how much you would learn about my actual devotions if you would come to my home and see what is it that's important to me. Where are my devotions? If you were to look at kind of the time I spend on things, Um, what would you discern about my actual devotion? Not what I say with my words, but like actually where I spend my time. You looked at my checkbook and, or or I go online and look at the account. Uh, Where am I spending money? Like these are the things that really depict for us what we worship, you know, what is important to us. And so to some degree, isn't it true that, that this is convicting for us, that 
we can say something outward and, and know God is our Savior. We know he's the only true and living God, but we really don't want people to not like us for it in the culture at wide. We become involved with other things that really become like worship to us, and we just get messed up in priority, and it starts slow, but it begins um, to depict a life of spiritual idolatry and adultery. Ultimately, it can't get there. And certainly, they didn't set out the Israelites to end up like this, but now they're at a point where they were, yeah, they still had owed to God in their house, but they put it in the back of their doorposts now, and they were more known for the things that they did outwardly with the nation in which they were now being assimilated. They didn't trust in Jehovah's promise to keep them distinct, didn't trust in his provision to uphold them eternally, whether they lost their lives physically or not. They were more worried about what the culture around them thought, and they wanted to compromise with that culture so they could get peace. In fact, it tells it tells us what they did on a, on a national level to try to gain this peace. Verse 9 and verse 10. You journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You sent your envoys far off and sent down even to Sheol. You were wearied with the length of your, of your way, but you did not say it's hopeless. You found new life for your strength, and so you were not faint. What's happening? They were trying to strike deals with the other nations around them. Remember how that happened early on in Isaiah, and he's talking about the northern kingdom looking for Egypt's help? Well, again, here it comes again. Babylon's coming upon them. The discipline of the Lord is clear. So they send out envoys to try to strike deals with the little vassal states around to get their help, to get their alliance. And so they bring them offerings. They bring them money. Even to the point where they send these emissaries out and they don't come back. They die. So they're even having people sacrifice their lives to go try to strike deals. They're striving and striving for peace. Yet they're in this turmoil. But they won't admit it. How is this? What is this like? Here's the best way I can compare it. Have you ever spent a bunch of money on something and then realized it was a waste of money, but you know you spent money on it, so you just tell yourself, no, that was a good use. Okay, here's my example. In February, we went to see The Phantom of the Opera. I saw it back in, um, in Chicago when I was in college, and I thought it was a, a wonderful production and everything, and I heard this was going to be a good production too. So we bought tickets. A hundred bucks a piece for these tickets. I'm going to have a good time for 100 bucks at a ticket. So we get our, get our parking, we pay for a meal, and it's, you're into a lot of money now. Would you believe, and I'm not kidding you, that our seats, I don't know what it's laid out, like the music hall in Kansas City is made out when we get the tickets. I'm not kidding. If there is a seat, it was in that upper corner up against the cinder block back wall. We were as high as you get. In fact, we were so high, we could not even see the, the, the candle opera that's up there. I couldn't make out if that was a Phantom of the Opera or a WWF wrestler. I couldn't tell the difference between who it was. I couldn't really even hear very well because they don't use a lot of, of, of artificial magnification. It was, I, I, I hardly got the story. Uh, it, I, it was pretty well lost to me. Now, that's the honest truth. Now, I only admit that now, these many months later. At the time, we're like walking out, boy, that was a great show. No, it wasn't. But we just spent over 300 bucks when you add it all up. It's got to be good. Okay, people do that all the time. They get into something wrong, and then they have given so much of themselves to it that they convince themselves it's actually good. Relationships can be like this. Um, Things we buy, commitments we make that we thought would turn out good, and we just won't admit that what we're doing is chasing after vanity. Well, what we have here with the Judaites is they are seeking after a relief for their turmoil because Babylon's coming. They're worried about dying, so they make all these compromises. They give so much of themselves away by what they worship, by what they do, their conduct. They even send emissaries to go try to get peace from, from vassal states that can help them out. And in all their striving, none of it's working yet. It says in verse 10, 
You were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say it is hopeless. You didn't admit the truth. You found new life for your strength, and so you were not faint. You even got stronger in your false worship, in false commitment. What an amazing thing. Seeking for peace, they gained more turmoil because they turned from Jehovah. Verse 11, whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me, did not lay it to heart? Have I not held my peace even for a long time and you do not fear me? Kylan Dalich, who I quoted earlier and, and I'm fond of in this particular passage especially, they write, from fear of man, Judah have given up the fear of Jehovah. From the fear of man, they gave up their fear of Jehovah. It was of men, only mortal men, with no real power that Israel was so needlessly afraid that it resorted to lies and treachery to Jehovah. Verse 12, I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. In other words, if you want to come independently, if you want to come with your own works, you want to come with what you have accomplished, I'll, I'll declare it, but it will not profit you anything. Your quote-unquote righteousness is filthy rags. You're on your own. Verse 13, when you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. When you're at your, at your end and your, your alliances haven't worked and your gods haven't answered for you and you've turned your back on Jehovah, when you cry out, see how those idols help you. We, we get the picture. We see what he, they're not going to come in for you. The peace you have been seeking is not found there. The wind will carry them all off a breath will take them away. And that's picturesque in this day with hurricanes and terrible things, uh, the, those things blowing away so easily that we thought were so important. What a word of reality, a word of judgment. Skip down to verse 20 and 21. This is the final word for the wicked, for the ones who will not seek Jehovah's refuge, that continue to try to find their own peace. Verse 20, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. It's too massive. It has too much motion. It has too much power. You cannot still it. The wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. And its waters toss up mire and dirt. It stirs up more that makes the matter worse. And there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Verse 20 and 21 captures the tone of unrepentant sinners, the tone of their lives. I, I know, like you, I will watch um, I mean, I have, we see the displays on media of the way people live. And it's easy for us to outwardly see somebody um, who does not, not only doesn't profess faith in, in God or in his Christ, but um, just lives a life of, of hedonism, you know, just self-pleasure, whatever, gains whatever they can gain for themselves. And you see them smiling all the time, and you see the, uh, the constant... Uh, paparazzi trying to catch pictures of what this rich person is doing with their life and on, uh, on the yacht that they're on and the life of leisure they're living and they're smiling all the time and they're eating food and they're drinking drinks and they have people all around them and they're smiling on the outside. And that's true on the outside we see that. But we have to believe God's word about the truth of the matter. The wicked have no peace. They may smile outwardly but they're in awful turmoil. And I don't say that so we can feel good about it and say, oh, we don't have that so good that they're, not, they're really suffering. No, it should break our hearts that anyone would churn like this and be at such odds with God. It's an awful existence no matter what the smile says. The wicked are like the tossing sea for it cannot be quiet and its waters toss up 
mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. And even if the show is good up front in this short life we live, it will not be in the life after. Have compassion for your unbelieving friends, for those who think that this, all there is to existence is this life now, who think that they can find peace with this stuff. But the passage provides a gracious contrast that I want you to see. It starts in the first two verses and then skips down into the section we have just completed. Look at verse 1 and verse 2 and see what's said there. I think this is very stark because it's true. It's not, there's no promise of prosperity for those in the midst of persecution um, when they are faithful to God. There is no promise that your peace will mean safety. It does not mean this. We have to get over that as Americans. Peace does not mean safety. We make it that way. But if you want peace, it's found in God. And that does not necessarily mean you'll be physically safe. Many times it does, but not always. But what do you want more? Peace or brief physical safety and turmoil thereafter? That's kind of the question that must have been asked at some time in the lives of the righteous who lived in Israel in these days. Verse 1 and verse 2. It declares, the righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. No one cares. Righteous people perish, but no one cares. Devout men are taken away, while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds, who walk in their uprightness. There was, in those days, and it has always been the case in times of trial for the church, a persecution that came upon the people of God, and many of those who were faithful to the name of Jehovah died for it. That's what this passage says. Yet, Most were too busy with their idolatry to even notice what was happening. They were losing the righteous from their midst, and the judgment of God was heaping up upon them as the righteous were dying. But the righteous, oddly enough, who were dying untimely deaths were actually the ones who had peace. The ones striving for it to get longer days were not having peace. The ones who were faithful to Jehovah, their God, their refuge, they may have died early, but they had peace. What a picture. Kylan Dalich says on this passage, men of piety are swept away without there being anyone to understand or consider that the righteous is swept away from the evil, that he may be saved from the approaching punishment. It was actually a grace of God to many of these folks who lived in this time. So I say to you, the people of God, there may be a call for us. Um, if we want the peace that God gives, we must rest in refuge in him and declare that. And that could cost us safety, but it won't cost us peace, which is everlasting and far more powerful. There's a great example of this as we are on the 500th year anniversary of the Reformation. I'll bring some of these um, into sermons just because it's such a monumental year for the Church of Christ. But there's a, a particular figure who is always, uh, I've always been attracted to his teaching and what he did, and it's him as a person, because a lots of the stories from the Reformation, a person stands boldly like Luther does, or, or any of the martyrs do, and they die martyrs' deaths, and, and they just stand from the beginning. But there's a man named Thomas Cranmer, maybe some of you know him, who struggled to stand. He was Roman Catholic in England. He had reformational ideas. He believed that the scripture is what people needed to understand God's will and to understand the gospel. He was like a pre-reformer in England. Um, William Tyndale had the same ideas, but died at the stake, burned alive for those beliefs. Cranmer came later. He finds himself essentially the leader of the Church of England when Henry VIII decides he wants a divorce but the Pope won't let him. So Henry VIII decides, I don't want you either, so we're going to have our own church. That's how the Reformation starts in England. He, he says, forget you, Pope. The Church of England's on its own. And Cranmer finds himself as the head of the Church of England, 
now with reformational ideas, able to write some of those things into confessions and creeds and requirements for ministers. There were other men just like him, Latimer, Ridley, a host of them. And while Henry was alive and then Edward after him, they were able to pen some of the most uh, blessed documents the church has ever had. The Book of Common Worship, the Book of Common Prayer, Come from Cranmer, the 39 articles that he wrote, which are very reformational statements about what the scripture teaches. They became the actual outline for the Westminster divines to write the Westminster Confession. He was publishing incredible reformational works. But then Queen Mary becomes the queen. And she turns England, or tries to turn England back to Catholicism, and goes on a mass killing spree of those who are teaching these doctrines. And Latimer and Ridley were almost immediately burned at the stake, martyrs, for believing in the scripture as God's authority in the gospel as it's laid out in the Bible and opposed the idea of a pope as the head of the church over Christ and so forth. Cranmer agreed with all this, but he got scared. I mean, you can understand that. He was weighing safety versus peace is really what it was. He thought peace would come with his physical safety, but it doesn't always is what we, we learn. So Cranmer immediately, with a lot of pressure, recanted his positions, wrote that he disagreed with these things he wrote so passionately earlier. I mean, it didn't make sense. It didn't, it didn't seem to uh, comport at all. Cranmer thought, if I can stay alive through this, maybe there'll be a time of peace again where I can say the truth again. But in the meanwhile, he was compromising what he said outwardly, and it was killing him inwardly. And he's writing this stuff down, writing this stuff down. Well, Queen Mary didn't trust it. She thought he was up to something. So she put him on trial. And it was unclear as to what the outcome of the trial would necessarily be. So Cranmer went into it thinking, well, I'll just state all these recantations again. So he submits his speech uh, to the authorities to give the speech. But then when he gets up and gives the speech, which was supposed to recount his recanting of all the stuff, instead, in an unexpected way, he deviated from the prepared script. He looked up from his manuscript and he started to denounce all his recantations. He said, I shouldn't have done this. I was wrong about this. And as for the Pope, this is his last words, literally. Uh, as for the Pope, I refuse him as Christ's enemy and Antichrist with all his false doctrines. They took him immediately to the stake where they were going to burn him. But everyone who saw him at that moment said, I've never seen Cranmer in greater peace than when he was going to the stake. The six months before was awful for him because he recanted the truth. He didn't, safety isn't worth peace, giving peace up. And so, in the book of Martyrs from Fox, he recounts what happened when Cranmer was taken to the stake. And when the wood was kindled and the fire began to burn near him, stretching out his arm, he put his right hand into the flame. He did so because it was the hand he signed the recantations with, and he wanted it to burn first. And he wanted everybody to see it. He held his right hand into the flame, which he had held so steadfast and immovable, saving that once with the same hand he wiped his face, that all men might see his hand burn before his body was touched. His body did so abide the burning of the flame with such constancy and steadfastness that standing always in one place without moving his body, he seemed to move no more than the stake to which he was bound. His eyes were lifted up to heaven, and oftentimes he repeated, his unworthy right hand, his unworthy right hand, so long as his voice would suffer him, and using often the words of Stephen, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, the greatness of the flame he gave up, in the greatness of the flame he gave up the ghost. The righteous man perishes, and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. 
For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. Now, starting the second half of verse 13, the text that I read earlier, let's look at it, and we will see how the focus turns from the wicked who are restless, who are in turmoil, who do not uh, turn from their sins, but stay stiff-necked into the face of God. Verse 13, the second part says, But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. And this is an immediate fulfillment in that the people who were steadfast, God would raise up through this time of exile in Babylon, and he would bring them back to the land. But that's only a, 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 a cursory view of the final inheritance that we will receive in Christ. Take refuge in me, God says, essentially. The righteous one. The righteous are those who take refuge in the righteous one. Go to God for care. Think of refuge in this day of hurricanes. If you are displaced from your home, you go to a refuge. Um, That's a place that will save you. a, A place that has all the things you don't have that you need. That's what we are to do as sinners who know we're sinners. Take refuge in God. And God has promised what he'll provide through his faithful servant. He who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. Verse 14. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. God forecasts a bringing back of his people. He will build up momentum for this coming forth. Yes, there's an immediacy to this, and then there's a, a, a call to all who hear this message and believe. God goes before his people, makes their paths straight. Verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, the Holy One, who inhabits eternity, whose name is Holy. This is the other one. I dwell in a high and holy place. And also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrary. You say, I do feel low. I feel humbled. I feel like there's nothing I've got before God. That is a tremendous place to be because where you are is exactly where God is. Yes, the high and lifted up one is also with you, the contrite. Contrite, what a word. We don't use it enough. Contrition, it's not just guilt. It's remorse for sin or shortcoming that compels us on to further action. Um, it's in, in this case, to, lay, to go to refuge in God. Contrition, real contrition. With a contrite heart, he doesn't despise us. He doesn't turn us away. He takes us on that basis because we really get it. We really know how humble we, we should be before God. We couldn't be more low. And it's in that place that the high and lofted, lifted up one meets us. I love how Kylan Dalich say it. For the heaven of heavens is not too great for him, and a human heart is not too small for him to dwell in. And he who dwells upon cherubim and among the praises of the seraphim does not scorn to dwell among the size of a poor human soul who recognizes their deficit before the living God. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place. God says all of that and it's true. And also, he dwells with you who are of a contrite heart and a lowly spirit. Yes, Lord, I have committed spiritual idolatry. Yes, Lord, I am an adulterer before you. I have spit upon your name. Lord, it's true. And like the tax collector, I can barely lift my head. And God says, there I am with you. You are who I am with. 
And I can do this without violating my justice because I provided my faithful servant in your place. I hope that our worship service gives some sense of verse 15. That is, we acknowledge God to be the high and lifted up one. In fact, constructing the building was meant to evoke some of this. It's, it's, it can only go so far with anything human, right? But when you walk in, there's a, there's a lower ceiling. I hope you notice it. The idea, walking through the big doors, you look up and you, you get a sense of God. I mean, not that this place is God, but it just reminds us of God's lofted nature. And he is beyond us. This is not a theater because it's not a show. This has to do with a sense that we should have about who God is. But in so doing, we also realize through his word through his sacraments, through fellowship with other believers, as we pray to him directly through Christ, he is with us. He is, both the, he is both the high and lifted up one, the just one, and he's the merciful one. This is the message that God wants for his people to grasp over and over and over and over again. Verse 16, even in the midst of this judgment during the time of Babylon, for I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would grow faint before me in, in the breath of life that I made. In other words, if I kept angry, everything would be obliterated. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, his meaning, it's a personification now, a metaphor, the people of God calling a man. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I also think he uses this metaphor to draw our attention back to other occasions in his book when he refers to him, like as in the servant. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, talking about the sins of the people, I was angry. I struck him, I hid my face, I was angry. And I was, ang- and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. He showed no sign of repentance on his own. I have seen his ways. God sees his ways and he says, forget him, never mind you. No, that's not what verse 18 says, is it? I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. He didn't say, I've seen his ways, you know what, he's going to repent. I looked ahead and saw his repent and I'll pick him. That's not what it says anywhere in Scripture. All he looks ahead to, to left our own device is the only thing we could do, which is sin. Trust me, if you could lose your salvation, you absolutely would. But I've seen his ways and I will heal him, is what God declares. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of his lips, peace, peace, to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. He has prepared for us good works beforehand. He is the one who gives the fruit. So when we read verse 15, yes, he is the high and holy one, and only he deserves the worship that we would give. None of this other stuff deserves it. None of it should get any of our devotion, because none of it is worthy of it. I began with an allusion to the self-righteous Pharisee who looked down on the more sinful tax collector, and I want to conclude with a picture that you are familiar with too, but I want you to think of in light of the text and what we have just studied. King David, we can relate with him not because we're kings, but because we're human beings who are sinners too and are weak. And King David was weak, and he fell, and he fell hard, and he fell in a way because of his position that was even, uh, had even more gravity than it would be for you and I, even though it would be awful. He committed adultery, he stole another man's wife, he committed adultery with her, committed adultery against his own wife. He then went, he killed her husband to cover his tracks, his righteous hus- her righteous husband. It could be difficult to imagine a more uh, grotesque series of sins. And yet, David, through himself, when his sins were ex- revealed to him, uh, threw himself upon God's mercy, and he prays in Psalm 51, 
For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He just pours himself out in the whole of Psalm 51. And then verse 17, David says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. You can't bring anything to God that's going to improve God's lot or give him something he doesn't have. He requires us to come to him with a broken spirit. And David says, because he realizes now by God's grace, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. We start a worship service in the salutation with that mindset all the time. We've come into the presence of the holy God. Wow. But we come with a broken and contrite heart because God will not despise it. I'd like us to close by reading together verse 15. You have it on the handout. Let's say together verse 15 as our final statement uh, after hearing this passage, walking through this passage together with one voice. Let's recite verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Oh Lord, please forgive us for our sense of self-righteousness that encroaches so often, for our judgments of others that we think are, are more sinful than us. Lord, give us humility. Give us contrition about our sin. Give us a compulsion to throw ourselves upon you and your mercy in Christ. Lord, we long for that kind of lowliness before your holiness, that we might rest fully in the mercy provided by you through your faithful servant, our Savior Jesus. Lord God, may we go from this place with a sense of deep peace and a care for peace more than safety knowing that our sins have been completely forgiven and that you have made us your sons and your daughters forever, no matter what. Pray this in Christ's name, amen. Let's together turn in our hymnals to prepare for the Lord's Supper and to respond to what we have just heard. 631, we'll stand and sing verses 1 through 4, and it's, it, it uses a storm as a metaphor, which is certainly picturesque today. But it is a metaphor spiritually, and we can grasp this just by the images we have seen in recent days of such a storm. Verses 1 through 4 will stand as we sing.